0: Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the AFRICA program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council.
1: And I'm Nicole Willette. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations.
0: This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time.
1: This episode is about Zimbabwe, and we are joined by Ambassador Johnny Carson, the former Assistant Secretary of State for Africa and National Intelligence Officer for Africa, as well as U.S. Ambassador to Zimbabwe, Uganda, and Kenya. The United States opposed the slow integration of black Zimbabweans under British rule and condemned white Rhodesian leader Ian Smith's unilateral declaration of independence in 1965. The status of Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, became a major foreign concern of Congress and the Nixon, Ford, and Carter administrations. Why? Well, Secretary of State Kissinger wanted to resolve the issue in part because he feared that Russian or Chinese influence could become ascendant if the liberation struggle was prolonged. Zanu and ZAPU, the main groups fighting against rule in Zimbabwe, had backing of communist governments. Kissinger, rather desperately, even tried to enlist apartheid South Africa to pressure Smith to allow multiracial democracy. While sanctions had been imposed, the U.S. Congress, especially Senator Byrd, was opposed to this approach and passed an amendment to exempt Chrome from the ban. Meanwhile, the White House wanted to see moderate Black leaders such as Abel Muzorewa and Joshua Nkomo take over instead of Robert Mugabe. The Carter administration made Zimbabwe, Rhodesia a major focus. Tony Lake, who was in charge of policy planning staff at the State Department at the time, had published a book critical of Kissinger's efforts entitled The Tar Baby Option, U.S. Policy in Southern Rhodesia. In partnership with the U.K. and neighboring African states, negotiations at Lancaster House Led to Zimbabwean independence in 1980, where Bob Marley then played a wonderful concert. Mugabe became Prime Minister of Zimbabwe in 1980 and President in 1987. The United States initially wanted warm relationships with President Mugabe, whose nations experienced post-independence development and economic growth at a rapid rate and was the first country to open an embassy in Zimbabwe. But Mugabe's vicious military campaign against the Nibale people, known as Hundi, and his support for Fidel Castro and Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua had a chilling effect. Former President Jimmy Carter literally walked out on Mugabe during an outlandish hostile speech at the U.S. Fourth of July event. By the late 90s, a combination of government corruption, mismanagement, shrinking space for political dissonance, and, depending on who you ask, the burden of structural adjustment, threatened early gains in Zimbabwe's development darling status. Nonetheless, bilateral relationships bumped along and Zimbabwe was generally helpful in Somalia and during the first Gulf War. But the real breaking point was the 2000 constitutional referendum, which Mugabe lost. With Western support turning to ice, he immediately started ramping up anti-U.S., anti-U.K. rhetoric, launched a series of land seizures and began to crack down on dis- any dissenters in earnest. Congress took action and in 2001 passed the Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act, known as Adira which required the United States to vote against new international lending through the World Bank, the IMF, and other financial institutions. Note that this hasn't come into force, as Zimbabwe's economic woes led to arrears, prohibiting them from taking out new loans regardless of the U.S. position. Meanwhile, the U.S. continues to be amongst the largest humanitarian donors in Zimbabwe, helping to hold off at times starvation amid the complete collapse of government infrastructure. The government's rapid corruption, hyperinflation, and a series of atrocious human rights violations against civil society and the opposition party members, led by Morgan Shangarai and its various offshoots, and rigged elections in 2002, 2008, 2013, spurred the United States to impose targeted sanctions, or in latter years, to keep them. Currently, 84 individuals and 56 entities are on the targeted sanctions list. Mugabe, however, never backed down, said some pretty egregious things about U.S. leaders and diplomats, among others, and I know our guest today has experienced some of that directly. Ruling in party fighting accelerated as party leaders considered a succession plan for the aged Mugabe, and he was overthrown in 2017 by the Zimbabwean military. The United States was under little illusion, mostly under little illusion, that President Emerson Mnangagwa, a former right hand to Mugabe, would represent the change Zimbabweans want. And despite many Zimbabweans hoping against hope that things might be different and the brave efforts of Zimbabwe's longstanding civil society, Menengagwa proves his detractors right when violence broke out in the wake of the flawed 2018 elections amid attacks by security services against protesters, civil rights organization, and again, opposition members. Judd, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure on Zim?
0: Well, I'll probably just say a quick word on a failure, which I think you illustrated with the opening. We haven't been able to help Zimbabwean civil society turn the situation around. We have sanctions. We don't invite Zimbabwean leadership to meet with our officials. And the situation keeps getting worse. We have trouble uh, corralling the rest of the neighborhood, the rest of Southern Africa to help. And and so here we are stuck with uh, another ruler who doesn't have his people's best interests in mind and i think we are floundering in ways to turn it around so it's it's a policy failure that continues and maybe ambassador carson will have some good ideas for us but i think the biden administration is going to want maybe some new thinking so ambassador carson what should the biden team do how
2: are they going to address this you know perennial challenge i think that if you're working with a difficult leader good ideas And good policies will frequently run aground. Emerson Monongagwa, like his predecessor, Robert Mugabe, is a difficult leader and presents an enormous set of challenges to U.S. policymakers. I think that it is important always with a new administration to try to look at ways to reset policy. As we do this, I think it is enormously important that we not forget who we're dealing with and that we not forget the people of Zimbabwe who have been hurt so awfully hard by an autocratic and ruthless set of leaders over uh, the last three and a half decades. And so, first of all, seek to engage Mr. Emerson Monongagwa and the leadership, make it clear that what we stand for is uh, a commitment to democracy, good governance, a reduction in corruption, and a improvement uh, in the way that the economy is managed. I think that we should not, in an effort to improve relations at a state-to-state level, give in and abandon our principles of democracy and respect for human rights and the need for the government to take care of its people. And I certainly would think that there are ways to strengthen uh, support for civil society, strengthen programs that are beneficial to youth, women, and girls, ways to help improve Zimbabwe's educational system and its agricultural system in support of uh, Black farmers.
0: So, Nicole, you were the NSC Director for Zimbabwe under President Obama. How do you engage a reset without making concessions? How do you defend our principles and values? you know, while trying to uh, do many of the things that Ambassador Carson just laid out, what would be the way that you would lead the interagency on this one?
1: Thanks, yeah, and I do think Ambassador Carson really nailed this one. So in support of civil society, we need allies in Congress and we have them. I think the Biden administration needs to turn towards those members of Congress who do care about the continent and some of them, particularly Zimbabwe, and look to really push forward democracy and governance, and of course, humanitarian support for Zimbabwe so we can continue to strengthen civil society and support the road that they want to take as opposed to one that is dictated by us. Civil society in Zimbabwe has been strong. It is true that they have struggled to turn the entire corner but they have some real sophisticated practitioners there and we need to be supporting them as much as possible. In 2008, which was arguably the biggest crisis that Zimbabwe has gone through in recent years, it was civil society that was able to step in even during a ban on NGOs and provide support to Zimbabwean citizens who are in real need. But I will also, to echo Johnny, say one of the hardest things sometimes to do with the interagency and diplomacy is to do nothing. Now, I'm not arguing we do nothing on Zimbabwe, but like Johnny says, I think we have to be really careful about red herrings because otherwise we do stand in the way of potentially abandoning what has been a long-term signal that human rights in this country matter. Now, of course, there's inconsistencies with other parts of the world, and we have to keep that in mind. But civil society and opposition figures in Zimbabwe have told us for a long time that they continue to need our stalwart support on those issues. So this means things like not getting pulled into a complicated fight with the government of Zimbabwe on sanctions and whether sanctions are the ultimate reason that Zimbabwe has struggled. They're not. And I think that many Zimbabweans know that um, from my experience on the ground. And it's not going to be a, a fruitful discussion. I do think, like Johnny said, there are other places where we can engage with youth, with young people potentially in both parties who are coming up and are interested in thinking about what best practices are um. In terms of governance, I also think we really need to keep an eye on security sector reform and openings there. It's been a tough road. The security sector is a real problem, as we've discussed already. But I do think if there are personal relationships, not unlike in Malawi, that we can learn to exploit, that that could be useful. And finally, really important to keep a close eye also in the security sector section about what happens with these recent conversations between the president of Zimbabwe and the president of Mozambique around this emergent conflict in northern Mozambique, Cabo Delgado. There is some discussion there about those security organizations working together. Neither of them have a great reputation on aptitude, and we really do want to keep an eye on that.
0: Besser Carson, you know, one big idea that Nicole said is do nothing. Um, Do you have a crazy idea or a big idea that you want to put on the table that changes the way we engage with Zimbabwe?
2: I think that there are a couple of things that fall down the normal track of diplomacy that ought to be revived and revisited. And that is to work with Zimbabwe's SADC neighbors, particularly its largest and its most important neighbor, South Africa, to try to uh, exercise uh, more diplomatic attention on the issues uh, of Zimbabwe and try to encourage South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, and Zambia, uh, and even Malawi under its new leadership, to try to get all of them to impress upon Zimbabwe the need to change. All of those uh, governments that I've mentioned, Botswana, South Africa, Namibia, Malawi, All have democratically elected presidents, all of them in good standing. And these are the individuals who can also be of major concern. Other big ideas that are are different. Yes, I think that we should look at outreach uh, to the business community, that part of the business community that is not associated with uh, ZANU and the uh, ZANU-PF leadership. Look for ways to make connections uh, with them to help them move forward, because it's important to remember that our sanctions are not against uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, They're not against the Zimbabwean people. They are against a limited number of Zimbabwean politicians who are responsible for holding back democracy, good governance, and the rule of law against individuals who have taken away the rights of other Zimbabweans to live free and innocently and fairly in their own country. And so I think we need to continue to 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 look for ways to reach out to Zimbabweans without sacrificing our principles and without undermining the things that we stand for.
1: Perfectly said ambassador. So, Johnny, you spent three years in Zimbabwe. You've traveled there countless times. Do you have a favorite getaway from all of the drama in Harare? And there are certainly some good ones to choose from.
2: Well, like you, Nicole, I think Zimbabwe is one of the most beautiful places in Africa. And it also has some of the most engaging and delightful people in uh, Africa as well. Its human capital has been squandered by its political leadership. But when I think about getting out of town and out of Harare, I don't think of just one place. I think of several places. I like to fish. And so I would occasionally drive to the eastern highlands to Troutback, which is a famous uh, lake and uh, fed by a cold water stream river to fish for trout. But my wife is not enamored of sitting around watching me fish. So uh, frequently, we would head south to Great Zimbabwe, to Mashvingo, and then uh, on to one of the seven wonders of the world, Victoria Falls. Well, that's
0: the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.